0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. So following a similar theme as last week's episode with adventure filmmaker Ryan Skura... We have Max Romy on the show today, another creative in the trail space whose work you might have come across if you used to binge watch episodes of Solomon TV like I did back in the day. Max joined me to talk through some of the major sustainability issues facing the footwear industry, a topic covered beautifully in the recent film he released for Normal, entitled No Lost Shoes. Again, I definitely recommend hitting pause on this conversation if you've yet to check it out. The film is free to watch on YouTube and well worth your time. Trust me. We also have reviews up on our site of the two normal shoes we mentioned in this episode, both of which I happen to love. So make sure to check those out if you want to learn more about how the brand is approaching sustainable footwear design in practice. Okay, before I bring Max on, I do want to take a quick minute to tell you guys about Blister's partnership with Spot Insurance. Injuries are definitely not the first thing that come to mind when we think about our favorite outdoor sports. But as many of you know, perhaps all too well in some cases, they happen from time to time. And even if you have standard insurance, the cost of your deductible and often a number of hidden fees means you're likely to get stuck with quite a hefty bill for any trip to the ER or hospital visit. That's where Spot comes in. With a Blister Plus Spot membership, you get injury insurance that covers everything from trail running to backcountry skiing to mountain biking and more. All of that in addition to the benefits of being a Blister member. For more info, make sure to click on the link in the show notes below. All right. And finally, I also want to remind you guys to leave us a rating or a review after this conversation wraps up. Little things like that really help us continue to put out new episodes of the podcast each week. Okay, let's get right into my chat with Max. Max, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, so I wanted to have you on for a number of reasons. Um, The first to chat about the work you're doing with Normal, including your short film, which came out a little while ago called uh, No Lost Shoes. But I thought we could first kind of kick off the conversation by talking about your watercolor paintings, because I think that's such an important part of your filmmaking and just who you are as a person.
1: Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny, right? Like watercolor, it's it's about like the least efficient way to capture anything. I mean, we're not like 1800s on like a scientific voyage on a sailing ship anymore. Like we have cameras on basically every device we own. But I find watercolor to be this kind of skeleton key to unlocking all of these questions that I have about everything and there's just something about it. It's like so simple, it's so easy, you can carry it with you everywhere but then like the process of sitting down and making a sketch, it kind of gives enough time for something to unfold a little bit. It's kind of like sitting down and being able to watch the clouds move a little bit. If you're just moving and moving and moving, you never see it happen but with a sketch, when you sit down, it like lets you kind of see the world move a little bit differently so it's been a funny thing but yeah who knew watercolor could
0: kind (laughs) of help help see a very fast world in a different way it seems like you have to like surrender a large amount of control using that medium though because it's not it's not like sketching with like i don't know a pencil or something you kind of have to let the 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 watercolors kind of take their own shape Um, do you find that to be kind of like liberating you know because you're not striving for perfection
1: It is a struggle every day. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, I, I would assume I'd like figure out perfectionism painting with watercolor by now. But yeah, I'm constantly fighting against it. And it's a good reminder that you really like can't control anything. But yeah, it's funny. Like, we've all know watercolor. I feel like that's the first paint that you put in the kid's hand because it's usually non toxic and, you know, not made out of lead like all the other good paints. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, it's one of those things that, in order to actually paint well with watercolor, you need to kind of give up a lot of control. And if you really control it, you're not going to make a painting but you're also not going to make those kind of mistakes that lead to the really great paintings. So, it's kind of funny but like a lot of the paintings that I really like are are created off of huge mistakes where the water really took control and, uh, and I didn't have much to do with it. But it also... Totally connects to the the stories as well because a lot of times I'll want to go make a painting of something. I'll get out there, I'll you know get all set up, and then something totally different will happen, and then that's the story. And so the analogy, both in the painting and then where the paintings end up taking me, is uh is pretty spot on. How'd you get started with it? My grandmother is a really incredible painter, but I also am super dyslexic. So for me, growing up, I was not great with reading or writing. And like as a little kid too, you know, everybody's kind of starts bad at writing and reading, but then I just never got better. And at one point, like it was bad enough where they kind of took me into a room and like they had me take all these tests and they're like, you are dyslexic, which I had no idea what that was. And um, and um basically, it just turns out that that those things are difficult for me. A lot of people have it, but it still feels pretty lonely. And so... For me, I I sketched and painted like everyone else does when you're young and that was something that I could do and people would just get. Like I was not, you know, words had nothing to do with a good sketch and so, I think I really kind of leaned into that and, um, and so, being bad at one thing really helped me get good at another and it was just something that was with me forever and um only recently once i was filming and painting and things would go wrong and i wouldn't get a shot or i needed a map or something like that that skill set that i'd been working on by accident forever kind of leaped back into my life and so uh so yeah it's it's, uh, it's funny where those things came from but yeah dyslexia and a lot of encouragement from my family is where all that
0: all that started. <laughs> Were you kind of self-taught? Do you like figure it out as you went along?
1: I think I've had like three lessons, maybe four four classes so far um, you know, in 29 years. So yeah, I'd say mostly mostly self-taught but like in a lot of ways the watercolor teaches you um, you make a mistake. And it turns out great and then you do more of it or I'd make something too colorful and I'd love it. And then that's where a lot of it came from. So, the initial skills, I probably learned some of those from like class and art school and, you know, art, art class and things. Um, but yeah, I didn't really go to like a fine art college or anything like that. It really is just thousands and thousands of pages and, and hundreds and hundreds of good mistakes. Where'd you grow up? Um, all over the place. Yeah. My dad is a biologist. So, we moved everywhere. Oh, cool. from like I was born in Maine. And then like when I was little, we lived in Utah and Ohio and New York and New York again. And then I moved to Alaska when I was in high school. And uh, this place just totally blew my mind. <laughs>
0: Yeah. It kind of adds up thinking about it though. Like your grandma is such a fantastic artist and your dad is a marine or a biologist. And I, I think like your subject matter is, is landscapes for, for, you know, the most part. And I, I can see the kind of connection there. <laughs> um, what appeals to you about um, painting landscapes?
1: Um, that if you mess them up, nobody will, nobody will get mad at you. <laughs> I think people... The thing that scares me the most about painting is like getting something wrong and, and people being upset or something like that. So, painting people is terrifying because if you mess up a person's face, they take it personally. And so, I could mess up a whole mountain range and get it totally wrong and, you know, people are still... Nobody would bat an eye. They'd say, oh, that's still way cool. What a beautiful thing. But it's... um it's great because it, it does give you this opportunity to kind of look at these places in a different way. And it's kind of this excuse just to like sit down and, and check it out for a while. I, I know with like ultra running, a lot of times toward the end of races, I'd notice a lot of the subjects I was filming would like start coming up with these wild excuses to kind of slow down. Like, they'd be like, I need to change my shirt, you know, and just a minute ago, they changed their shirt and you start to realize like, oh, they're doing this because... Because you just want an excuse to kind of pause for a second. And I think I noticed that for myself too, is like sketching. I think I've always wanted to kind of spend more time in these places and sketching was kind of that opportunity. You paint a landscape, you have this like excuse to hang out on top of a mountain for an hour or seven. And uh, you know, you can kind of justify it that way.
0: Yeah. It seems like oh, such an awesome marriage between like your two passions, you know, like watercolor and and running incredibly long distances Um, what's your kind of like field setup? Like what, when you head out for a run, what do you take with you in terms of like art supplies? Oh, good question. Um,
1: it totally depends. I would say nine out of 10 times I have a sketchbook with me. Um, if I'm going somewhere interesting and usually it's just like a little, like I've got, you know, various little packs of, you know, a sketchbook and a little water brush and a pen and a tiny palette. That's all you really need. Um, but I would say also, you know, if 9 out of 10 times I bring some art supplies, 8 out of 9 times, they do not come out of my backpack. Uh, it's so hard to make that first mark on anything. I, I struggle with getting outside too. Like, I love running, but for me, that doorstep mile is really high. That idea that the first step over, you know, over the threshold is the first mile um, because it's so hard to kind of get out of the house. And it's the exact same for me. Like that first that doorstep mark on the page is so tough to make. And it's funny because I'll notice that the more beautiful places, the less likely I am to make that mark on a page. (laughs) So, if I'm like somewhere particularly scenic, uh, it's almost impossible for me to actually like feel feel uh, n- not like an imposter and make a mark on that sheet of paper. Um, but that that ninth time of those nine times I bring it out that I actually do make a mark on the sheet of paper, I I love where it goes. Um, and it's just kind of a numbers game, I think, to get over that.
0: Say more about that. Like, why do you kind of like? Take a minute before um, taking out the the watercolor set when you're in you know somewhere really really beautiful you know because it's kind of counterintuitive right oh
1: absolutely yeah no it's it's a full on intimidation um, I have never met something scarier than a blank page it's terrifying it's like a lot of writers say that too oh yeah no I bet oh yeah yeah because like they can they can go literally anywhere at least just paint some kind of like constrained to like colors and you know to get my ideas across but um, yeah it's so scary because. That sheet of paper could be anything and then as soon as you make a mark, it no longer can be anything. And and then there's kind of this valley of despair in every sketch. Um, same with editing and filmmaking too. You start super excited and then by the time you kind of get to the middle, there's always this moment where you kind of like, maybe I should quit as an artist and just kind of like become a banker or something like that. And then you kind of climb out of the valley and you love it and immediately sign on to another project or start another painting. But um, yeah, it's just, it's really scary. I think there's a huge fear, like uh, the fear of failure is is always there and has never really disappeared. And I think that the more I paint, the more mechanisms I have to figure out how to trick myself into starting. But I don't think there's ever been a painting where I've been able to just just easily do it, just get there and do it. Um, It always takes something to push me over the edge. And then once I'm there... The you know the lizard brain takes over like that part of yourself that just knows how to paint, but um but yeah it's it's uh it's funny i there is no trick to kind of getting rid of that, and the more beautiful a place is, the more pressure there is to capture it in a way that makes it feel that way, and uh, that's kind of the challenge that I think keeps me coming back to trying to make paintings in
0: in these wild spots. The parallels between that process and running there's so many of them, you know, like the idea that. You never want to get out the door to run or, you know, these massive races just wreck your body, but you're co- you keep on coming back from more. This idea that like the struggle will, is ultimately something that you learn from in the end, um, but it never really gets easier, I think is, is poignant. Um, what's like your favorite place to paint?
1: That's a good question. My favorite place to paint. Um, I don't know if I have found my favorite place to paint yet. It's it still feels very new. Which is a strange thing. So, I'm 29 and I've been painting since I'm about six. So, we're looking at like 23 years of painting. But like, it still feels as if I started two weeks ago because I kind of feel like every time I make a sketch or I'm interested in something, it's it feels like a whole new experience. I mean, what I'm sketching now, I'm, I'm doing like a daily sketch every day for a year, some day 65 or 66 right now, but that feels totally different. And then in Katmai kind of sketching shoes, absolutely different experience. So it's kind of funny, but for both good and bad reasons, I sort of feel like, like I'm very new to this, um, even though I've been doing it for two decades now. And um and that's great when it comes to staying engaged. It's terrible when it comes to imposter syndrome, because every time I, I make a new sketch or try a new project, I kind of feel like I'm an absolute novice. And <laughs> I kinda need to claw my way like back up into convincing myself to keep on going. But um yeah, it's there's the beauty of of like a short or small sketchbook is that you can kind of take it anywhere and discover those places. Um, and there's not like one set formula of like this is the perfect place to make art it 's kind of something that you can fill in these like little gaps almost like finding that one letter that like makes ten words in a scrabble board toward the end um and that's that 's the best part for me is figuring out how art can fill in these gaps and help connect these amazing these amazing things in my life like the the Japanese you know fixing a broken pottery thing with like a little bit of gold like the sketchbook for me, that art, the sketches are that little bit of gold that kind of connect those pieces together
0: for me. It, it doesn't sound like you end up scrapping a lot of the sketches you start based on that.
1: Oh, I scrap tons or, of them. Oh my God. Really? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Wow. Like I have just finished my first sketchbook cover to cover in my life uh, about two weeks ago. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would say like most of them are half filled. I'll kind of, I'll do really great. And then halfway through, I will kind of... <laughs> give up or or maybe i'll have a string of 35 great sketches and then it'll take one just to stop me in my tracks but um but every every time i end up finding my way right back there and i think that's that's one of the biggest lessons i've learned is that there's these things in your life that you're going to keep on coming back to no matter what and and you will end up there from all kinds of different directions. It's like bushwhacking with, you know, with like a peak in mind. You'll always, you'll always end up at that spot that you can see above the bushes. You just might take a different route each time. And for me, I think sketching is one of those. Alaska is another. Marine debris is one. But, you know, I've, I've been doing this long enough that I keep on spinning around, but then I always end up back at the same place. And, um, And sketching is definitely kind of one of those funny ones where, yeah, the amount of times that I've just been too afraid to open up the sketchbook or continue or I'll have a really bad sketch and I'll stop or I'll have a really good sketch and I'll stop. And uh, it's amazing that just there's something about it that keeps me coming back. And I, yeah, I can't really help myself, but I'm, I'm I'm glad it happens that way.
0: Is there an area that maybe isn't like your favorite place to paint, but an area that you've painted the most? Cause I think there's like something interesting about returning to the same, I don't know, like mountain range or the same Vista day after day after day and like seeing subtly how it changes. And I'm wondering if you've noticed that perhaps more because you've painted it.
1: Definitely. Yeah. There's definitely some hikes that I've been on that are easy to get to with a good view. Um, In Alaska, we have the front range and it is, well, in Alaska in Anchorage, like there's like a mountain range per person up here. It's, it's enormous. But in Anchorage, there's the Front Range and it has these few peaks that are really quick to get to. And one of my favorites is Little O'Malley. Um, I think it has a real name too. Who knows who O'Malley was. Um, but it's, it's this like really quick, easy spot to get to. And I do find myself sketching there a lot, but it's mostly out of ease. And I think there's nothing wrong with that either because... Cause the reason that I do a lot of sketches instead of huge, huge paintings is cause my sketchbook is easy to bring with me, but it's kind of, it's, uh, like rivers, you know, they follow, they follow the path of least resistance and there's something beautiful to that. And I think the same can be said for art is, you know, something is making me continue to go to those places, even if it's my own laziness. Um, but yeah, little O'Malley, I've seen change a lot and, um, and, the more I sketch, the more I do notice these these subtle shifts, especially looking back at the sketchbooks and and sometimes going back to fill in or start back where where I left off, you know, five months or five years ago.
0: Yeah, it really kind of uh, you know demonstrates like the scale of time. I uh, I run like my local mountain every day, and I always like pick up on these little nuances. And I think if I had, if I spent more time like really appreciating and the The trails and taking more time to, like, you know, as you do paint them, I think that would that appreciation really grow. Yeah. Um, Well, it's,
1: I mean, it's a wild privilege to see something change. And I don't think I realized that until I did a ton of traveling. And so I, I was like the, I was a filmmaker, freelance filmmaker. I worked with Solomon a lot for, um, you know, years. And we got to travel everywhere. It was crazy. It was like for work, they'd send you to Germany or like, you know, uh, the Azores or something wild like that. And it was so cool traveling to these places. And they were all beautiful. And I have tons of sketches from them. But one of the things I miss the most is you, you don't have seasons when you're kind of crisscrossing the world. And it's just... I take those things so for granted. But to be able to be in a place and to actually have enough of a relationship with that place to see it change is such a such a, a blessing. And only once I kind of stopped doing like the real hardcore freelance life, was I able to kind of come back and see that. Sketching definitely helps because you can kind of flip back. It kind of accentuates that a little bit. But um yeah, the people that like grow up in the fells and you know, do the same mountain range every day for like 50 years or or the people that can kind of have that that time lapse vision is something I really envy and, um, and hope to have here in Alaska as well. I've only been here for 10 years or something like that but um, I think that, that that's something that everyone can strive for. The traveling is cool, don't get me wrong. It's awesome to like jet set and do all these things but there's this idea that like that is what freedom and happiness looks like and honestly being able to do the same hike every day for a year i think would be a trip to bali
0: every day i agree it's definitely undervalued and i think it just takes you know time and repetition to really appreciate yeah um so you you mentioned uh your career uh, as a filmmaker, which is how I kind of first learned about you. Those Solomon videos were amazing. Um, how did that kind of come about? Like, how did you go from painting to to adventure filmmaking?
1: Yeah. Well, paintings has always been part of my life. Like, I've always, always, right. always, always sketched. And the filmmaking was kind of a way to add movement in there. Um, for me in Alaska, I started filming because I didn't see the films that I wanted to hear. I would see all these like really cool films like Dean Leslie um, did uh, like a lot of the really epic Solomon ones. I'd see those films as like that's the coolest thing ever but nobody's making films of the trails in my backyard and so, I kind of strapped a janky DSLR to like an old tripod and kind of chased some friends around in the woods and and so, I tried to make the films that I wish that I could have seen kind of growing up and... Um, and that's one of those things that I just kind of kept on doing. I'd go into college. I was a runner for Western Washington University, got injured. And while I'm, you know, not able to run, but on a bike, then I'd, I'd take the camera with me and I'd film the team or I'd go to the meets. And, and um, it's just this great way to be able to tell a story. Um, so that's that's where a lot of the kind of the filmmaking aspect came from, and then later on, Ricky Gates actually connected me with that first job because I I was I recently quit a job with um, Run Gum of all things with with Nick, Nick Simmons, uh, you know they're doing some cool stuff, but I kind of wanted to I kind of wanted to film film things that were a little bit more in line with what I did, and so Ricky Gates kind of snapped me up because I was one of the few filmmakers that could keep up with a lot of these long distance runners. So, I wasn't the best by any means. I, I would say I was maybe an above average filmmaker, maybe, but I was also an okay runner and then I was decent at editing. So, I wasn't... I was like a Venn diagram, you know? I wasn't like the best at any of these but because all of those circles intersected, I was able to be like that very, very tiny percent right there in the middle. And, um, and I was just you know, lucky to have that opportunity and it, and it helped me kind of meet a lot of these really amazing people and, and also get an appreciation for how to tell that kind of a story.
0: Do you think your any like attributes from uh, your watercolor paintings kind of translate over to film, particularly like the idea of like surrendering control? in a sense. Definitely, yeah. Film, film and watercolor have
1: a lot in common. Um, both the, the chaos that they'll both bring into your life and that you have to live with. Uh, the fact that you're trying to make something that people will find beautiful, but it really won't come together until right at the very end. Um, but also the fact that it's just layers upon layers upon layers. When I see a film in like the Trail Run Film Festival now, I can't not deconstruct it. I see, I see the music. I see how it comes together with the story. I see what they're doing with the, the light and they, they do these layers and layers and layers and it makes this single perfect story, but it takes just, you know, tons and tons and tons of those to really come together. And it's the same with the watercolor. You know, somebody sees just a, a full-on picture, but the painter sees just the whole deconstructed everything within that. So there's tons and tons of um of of commonality between watercolor painting and a lot of a lot of the work I do. And it, it really makes me appreciate that that nobody has told me that it's a waste of time. You know, nobody says, Oh, just go take a photo. It'll, it'll be quicker. Um, I've been really lucky to have people encourage me to do something that seems silly and slow. But in the long run, I feel like it's probably taught me more than any, any college course or,
0: uh, or you know, <laughs> education ever could. Totally. Do you have trouble watching films now because of that knowledge. I guess like I, I majored in English in college and for a while after I graduated, it was like really difficult for me to just like sit down and read a book, like without hyper analyzing it and like deconstructing it. Um, and I'm wondering if that kind of applies to, to how you approach other people's films now.
1: It does affect how I, yeah, now that I work on a lot of films, I find it difficult to sink into the magic of a film but it still happens. A lot of times, I'll, I'll pick up on things, you know, on on how something was color graded or how it sounds or I'll, I'll be taking notes for myself when somebody does a really good job. But occasionally, you'll have a film just nail it all together and you can't but help just sink right into it. It's like getting sucked down a waterfall. like It just pulls you right in. And that's kind of the goal of every filmmaker. Um, a lot of them can, can nail that even when sharing films to other other filmmakers. Like there's a really good Patagonia one called um, Guru Guru about the about the Wolverine kind of, you know, these... And that one, like I think I saw that at the Wild and Scenic Film Festival and I... That was one where I was like, oh, I should take some notes because I like what they're doing and then the film was over and it was like, whoa! and uh And so that's kind of the goal that I'd love to be able to do with mine is to be able to just kind of pull people down that rabbit hole and kind of share share something new because the world is so complex and has so many layers and so many uh so many interlocking pieces, I think sometimes only a film can really help bring that in a really good story because the headlines are just so black and white and uh and the solutions are found in the gray areas that films can kind of help show.
0: Yeah, I think like a really good film kind of bypasses uh, your like, I don't know, it kind of bypasses your desire to to analyze it in a sense and kind of like hits directly into your soul, which I think a lot of your work does for me, at least. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Chalk one up. Um, so what's so hard about uh, covering like a race from a like creative standpoint? uh because I, I like to me, like ultras are so long and they require so many like there's just so many moving parts. like how do you kind of set out to tackle capturing a race uh, on film?
1: The hardest thing of capturing a race on film is not getting lost in the forest, um, both physically and literally um, in, in, in a lot of senses, but the the amount of room for things to go wrong in a, in a race is huge even in a track race, but in an ultra, that that stage is just enormous. If you're talking about something like uh, Western States 100 or the Tahoe 200 or um, Hard Rock 100, these are 100 miles of trails and any step that that runner takes could be the step that they roll an ankle or pass the competition or decide to, you know, to wait till another day. Any one of those steps could be that moment that changes everything. And you've got to figure out as, you know, a person with maybe one other one other filmmaker helping you, but not the team of 500 that it would take to like actually capture every step. You've got to figure out how to, how to pick which parts of that story you're going to be able to tell. And then that is only rivaled, the scale of these like ultra runs are only rivaled by the scale of the emotions that go behind pushing people to do these wild things. So yeah, it's really hard just to kind of pick one avenue and and not get too too lost in the forest there. But but ultimately, something will something will stand out. And either if you know you do it by on purpose or by accident, but you pick that one thing, and then you're able to take that part of their story, or perhaps that piece of that race, and you can kind of just keep on unfolding it and unfolding it and unfolding it until you have a story. Um, and that's that's I think mimics a lot of life because nobody has these massive plans and then decides that they're going to do something like Hard Rock 100. Um, I feel like everybody kind of ends up there by accident. <laughs>
0: but yeah. it's
1: the journey of ending up at these places that's interesting. And, um, and the results are great, you know, and the, the race is fantastic. But it's the journey there that that I find really, really amazing. and then, And then what that means about the journey from there. And I think ultra running is going to be an amazing metaphor for dealing with a lot of these huge issues that we're going to see in the next five to 50 years. And we're going to see more change in Alaska probably in the next 50 years than we have in the last 5,000. And it's really hard to get a sense of that unless you're in these places. And I think ultra running and runners are going to be kind of the canaries in the coal mine uh, in a lot of ways. Hopefully, we don't like pass out like the analogy is, but you will be the first ones to see a lot of this because we do a lot of the same trails. We actually get out there. Um, we are we are some of the first people to kind of connect with these big changing places. And so, I think stories are going to be really important and the people that live them to kind of noticing these things and, and lighting the sparks that make the change to hopefully hopefully stop some of them.
0: I think that's the perfect segue into talking about No Loss Shoes and your work with Normal. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you uh, got involved with Normal and uh, how the project came about?
1: Yeah. Okay. So Normal with two ends. Um, every time I've, I've typed Normal with two ends enough that on my phone it like autocorrects yeah. to double end Normal now, which is an yep. issue. And I'm just trying to say like, oh yeah, I'll take like you know a normal sandwich, um, but. Yeah. So normal is new brand, kind of like, uh, like Patagonia meets Solomon in some ways, you know, perf- like high performance, but also like deep sustainability. And, uh, I was approached by Killian, uh, about, you know, being able to tell some stories within, within this kind of new parameters. He wanted to do something that no other brand really was doing in a way that that no other brand was really doing by combining performance and sustainability. And it seems like an awesome challenge. Um, tr- trying to chase down Killian and his wild ideas is one of my hobbies. And um, and so, it was really fun to, to have that support. And so, when we did some initial meetings, the first thing I could think of was these shoes that I was finding in Alaska. They're talking about trying to kind of close the loop because A lot of the the sports equipment we wear, a lot of the shoes we have are very unrecyclable, (laughs) so to speak. And I'm like, I am such a hypocrite because I've had probably 300 pairs of shoes in my life. I'm 29 and I've probably had three. Yeah. Yeah. Around 300 pairs. So, um, I am, I am a bad offender and I can guarantee you almost none of those have been recycled. Because it's so hard to recycle shoes. They're like made out of laminates and various different composites and all of these things. And they're stitched and glued. And, um, it's a nightmare, but they're also wildly durable in that they'll, they'll be able to end up in a landfill and then make it into the ocean like nobody's business. So on some of these remote trips that I've been in to kind of try to pick up some of this marine debris in Alaska, I'd find shoes and it made me think, is this company trying to basically prevent all of their shoes from ending up in a place like this. If normal does it right, if they're able to like really offer a sustainable solution. None of their shoes will end up on the beaches of Alaska in 10 or 15 or 20 years. Um, and, and that's kind of where this idea came from of next time I'm out there, let's take a sketchbook and kind of, kind of see, see where those thoughts go. And what unfolded was this kind of wild journey of finding these shoes, uh, Thinking of where they came from, but then also just trying to wrap my head around the scale of it. And it took me some like pretty discouraging places, but also just really reinforced just how important being able to close that loop is.
0: Can you provide like a brief synopsis of the film itself to maybe some folks who haven't haven't watched before listening? Absolutely. Okay. It's the best 12 minutes of your life. Um,
1: no, so no Lost Shoes is, is... It captures my journey heading to a place called Katmai in Alaska, which is kind of like Jurassic Park, but with bears. It's these huge, giant, like pristine, jungly cliffs um, with these ecosystems that feel like they haven't been touched since the dawn of time. But on the beach, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of marine debris, just ocean plastics that wash up. Everything from like shampoo bottles to hard hats and shoes. And um, the journey is kind of me heading there with Peyton Thomas um, and a bunch of other you know, really cool scientists and folks to try and remove as much of this as possible, but then also understand a little bit about what is ending up there and how some of the shoes that might be on your feet right now could end up in a place like this. If you think of all the pairs of shoes you've had in your life, most of them probably in a landfill, maybe they got recycled and reused for a little while, but ultimately they'll end up in a landfill. And then in the landfill, they'll take something like a thousand years to break down. So, the likelihood of your shoes staying in the landfill is kind of slim depending on where they end up. And a lot of them end up in the ocean and then in the ocean, they kind of spin around in these currents and they could end up somewhere like Katmai, Alaska. And so, it's kind of the film is kind of thinking about some of these ideas of how these shoes kind of keep on making steps after you're done with them uh, and what those solutions would be. But I took a sketchbook and I ended up sketching and then using the shoes like a fish print to actually make the footprint that they're continuing to make on the sketchbook Um while painting the shoe itself, and then ultimately kind of trying to, trying to come up with the big picture of what that all looks like. And that's kind of the, the journey of the film itself.
0: Yeah, I think your idea to kind of incorporate your watercolor was like, so genius. And I'm curious, like, where you came up with that?
1: Oh, uh, my lack of budget. Yeah, no, I, I had uh, I, I a lot of watercolor into my film, partially because that's how I see the world. When I see a mountain range, I, I see it for the shades of what it could be in a watercolor now. But also because some of these ideas are just too big to, to not have a little bit of creativity to help share them. For instance, uh, one thing I'm trying to wrap my head around right now is the fact that plastics will only ever break up. They will never break down. So, so thinking of a pair of shoes we would find, you know, a half kind of torn apart pair of shoes, because Alaska in the winter is like a cheese grater. Like these are just hard, harsh, harsh, harsh environments that kind of shred anything. And so we'd find like these plastics, but it would make me think, why don't we just let them, you know, sit here? Like are not hurting anybody. You know, you can chew on a plastic bottle and you'll be fine. But these plastics will literally never break down, they'll only break up. So, they'll just get smaller and smaller and smaller and that's when they start to do the damage. So, we've only had plastics for like 70 or 80 years in a big capacity and they're just now breaking down small enough to start doing the damage. So, part of what we were doing there is kind of buying ourselves some time, pick up these huge pieces because you know, a, a bottle could be broken down into a million microplastics so, you can pick it up now but harder to deal with the microplastics. And you kind of need some creativity to wrap your head around that stuff. I still need creativity to wrap my head around that stuff because it's like these environmental problems are like staring into the sun. You cannot stare into the sun without burning your retinas out. But you can look at it sideways or you can kind of look at it out of the corner of your eye or, or in a reflection. Um, to get a sense of the shape and the size. But the the actual problems themselves are really scary. And, and the creativity in the painting helps me understand it a little bit better.
0: When did you kind of like, you know, think more about these issues? Like, what was there kind of like a, a turning point in your life where you, I guess, like decided to get more involved in environmental activism?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Let me think here for a second. I don't know if there was a flashpoint that got me, that that galvanized me enough to get into activism. And I'm not even quite sure if I still consider myself an activist. I think that when you see these places and you actually understand some of the changes they're going through, any rational human would want to stop that. So, I don't know if I'm an activist so much as I am um, very lucky to be very well informed. I've actually been able to be in these places, and I've been able to see it with my own eyes. And I think I think anybody would, would probably have the same reaction. But um, but the more I learn, the the less I can the less I can just keep on going on in the way that I have been. And a lot of it is because there's no other way that we can live because a lot of the choices we have are not great ones. There's not a lot of sustainable options out there for us, and that's that's not a good choice. I'm not saying everybody should use no plastic. We need plastic to do what we're doing. And if we all use glass, um, you know, stuff would be a lot heavier, and we need more shipping to to do it. But if we if we start by just understanding the problem, then other people can figure out what those solutions are. And so I think we're just kind of at the stage where people need to figure out what is happening and be the sparks that will light the big fires of ideas that will actually find the solutions. But um, but for me, it's kind of been a journey of being able to kind of learn more about this. And and once you learn more about it, you can't not share. It's just figuring out the way, creative or not, that you can start sharing those little things that you're experiencing.
0: Yeah. It's something you kind of like can't unsee, right? Very much so. Yeah. a
1: A wild place covered in trash is definitely one of those. I mean, this is the wildest place I've ever visited. And it looks like a beach after a rave party in like Florida, (laughs) but there's no people, there's just bears. And uh, it just, it's so, it feels so wrong and so confusing of how all this stuff could end up here. But, but it's just the, it's just the invisible part of of the lifestyle we're living. We just don't see a lot of the impacts because they are, they are in far off places like here in Alaska.
0: Yeah. At one point in the film, um, you express like how angry seeing all of that debris on the beach makes you feel like, how are you able to channel that anger um, into like more productive ways? Cause like it happens to me all the time. I'll see, you know, someone not picking up after their dog and leaving like a plastic bag on the trail. And I get so pissed off by it, but I that's kind of where it ends for me. Like I don't channel that emotion into anything productive. And I'm wondering if there's like some steps that uh, we can take aside from like making films about, about uh, environmental, environmental concerns like you do um, that would be helpful. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, if I didn't have running, I'm sure I'd boil over. Like there's, there's so many things that can kind of make you angry. And and unfortunately running is one of those amazing hobbies I don't know if it's a hobby, it's more of like an amazing, you know, way of seeing lifestyle. lifestyle. There we go, an amazing yeah. lifestyle that it does kind of let me burn off some of the frustration. And I'll often start to run frustrated and angry about something I learned or saw. And then by the end of the run, I'll have an idea about how to how to find a solution for that like running is this incredible machine that it can kind of turn frustration into action. I don't know how it works. Maybe it's the oxygen kind of hitting your brain or something like that, but um yeah, go for a run with the problem and see what solution you end up with. But a big part of that too is you will remain angry until you can start to do something about it. And there's this idea that to do something about it, you need to do the huge big splashy world-changing thing. But the truth is The world is made up of millions of tiny communities. And so, you don't need to change the world. You just need to change your tiny community. That's what counts. And there's nobody better suited than you in your own community. You know, I don't need to go down to the rainforest to like tell them what to do, you know. They are there. They know what they're doing. They're going to do that. Um, and I don't need somebody from New York City coming up to Alaska to tell us what's wrong. We're here in Alaska. We understand what we're doing. We can, we are in touch with the, the, you know, the community here. And, and that's where it starts. Um, you figure out kind of where the pain is in your local community. And then you are the, the expert in being able to solve that. And if you're not the expert, you either become the expert, you bring one in. But, um, by solving those little things in our local communities and taking those little steps, one, you're actually doing something. You're, it's like an ultra. It's like what Courtney said, just constant forward, forward progress. You know, that's what counts. Just constant forward motion. Um, even if that's crawling, so long as you're crawling in the right direction, you're, you're doing it right. And, and you're not going to feel that pressure. But uh, everybody crawling in the right direction leads to us running where we need to go and, um, and we'll get there. I have no doubt we'll get there but, but it's not going to be one giant big flashy solution or one perfect film that changes everybody's mind. It's going to be a million little tiny actions from people in tiny little communities that add up to that big, that big effect.
0: So what are some things that normal is doing in terms of making shoes that, you know, won't end up in Alaska?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing is they're, they're asking those questions. Um, they are they are legitimately like at the heart of the design process. They're not just trying to figure out some way to greenwash it. They're, they're actually building the stuff in there. Um, the way they're creating the shoes I've seen has been in a way that will make them more easily able to be taken apart for the recycling process, like different components being only one type of um, plastic. But then also they're doing a thing called the no trace program where they will let you recycle any of your shoes and they'll pay for it to happen. So some of the stores have drop boxes where you can do it, but you can also just like fill out a label and they'll pay for the shipping. And so they're creating a solution online that you can get your shoes out of the, you know, the linear the linear model, where they eventually just end up probably, you know, in the ocean or or in a landfill. But you can kind of keep them in circularity by sending them somewhere where they'll be reused and then recycled and eventually kind of um, upcycled into something that is more permanent and and still within the system. So they're doing some good stuff, but they'll also be the first to admit that it's just like a tiny step. Um, but when a company proves that it can be done. It kind of forces all the other companies. Uh, it kind of calls their bluff, and and hopefully by normal showing a good example and kind of taking the lead. Sort of like when somebody just goes out in a race. You know, they don't wait. They don't wait until the very end to try to sprint it out. When somebody just goes for that record, and everybody else has to, you know, has to follow up with the pace. I think that's kind of what Normal's trying to do. Is they're going to show the best that they can do, and then hopefully these other companies with tons of resources and you know huge brand power follow follow the lead because it it takes all of them. You know, you can't just have Normal do it. It takes every one of these companies, and I think that's what that's what the future is going to look like. Is is um, is everyone else kind of catching up to the innovation?
0: Yeah, and Normal's taking all these measures. Without kind of sacrificing the performance of their shoes, I've written extensively about both models, and uh, they're some of the best shoes I've worn in the past year or two, which is all the more impressive,
1: yeah, they seem to be doing all right. Killian Killian doesn't seem to have slowed down very much. Uh, I guess, yeah, the other thing too is they're trying to make more durable shoes. um and And it's true. you know, a lot of the times with these shoes, like we see them as disposable. but um the first step is in all these things. Making them last as long as possible, and then finding an appropriate way to dispose of them when we do and um, and it 's cool i mean they're they they're young they 're a young company, and they 're still figuring it out, but it's been kind of cool to see sort of the inside step of of a bunch of people crawling in the right direction um, but they're they 're picking up speed now, and it makes me really excited what the next year has the offer.
0: Yeah, they're also incredibly versatile too, you know, so you only need one or two models to get you through like, a week's worth of training for different, you know, running occasions, as opposed to like five or six different models, one for like muddy ground one for, you know, your long run. I think uh, that is invaluable when it comes to like a sustainability perspective, not spending, you know, A ton of money to have like seven shoes in your quiver, just relying on two.
1: It's yeah. Well, the funny thing is, like I, I was the person who would make the videos to try to sell those five different models of shoes. Like I spent a lot of you know like years kind of making these videos that hyped up these very specific types of shoes, and so it's kind of refreshing to be. Unselling it, you know, don't buy a couple of pairs of shoes, buy one, um but also just use what you got so it's it's a little bit refreshing, but at some level, it kind of feels like i'm I'm trying to unbury myself from uh from <laughs> you know, a little bit of a career of trying to sell people on buying more and more and more um I think that you know there are good models, and I think a lot of these companies are doing the best that they know how, but we are entering a new phase where where we kind of have to build sustainability into what we're doing no matter what company you are because because in order for this to work it's going to take everyone and uh it can't just be like the environmental brand or it can't just be like the environmental athlete it's it's going to take everyone and um and and I think environmentalism is going to turn into a very different thing because because it's not going to be these outspoken outliers i think it is going to be a much more normal um single and normal uh, thing to to want to to fight for and, and defend the the places that are special to
0: us. I know you recently became a father. Has that kind of changed your perspective about these types of issues at all? Oh, being a father totally changed it. Yeah, everything
1: is more scary now because... <laughs> What was just kind of the future has now become their future. And so it went from it went from like, oh well, okay, we we don't want microplastics just totally infiltrating all of Alaska, everything from the fish to the forest. Like that would be an issue. But now it's like, oh my God, like this is Kip's future. He'll like live to, you know, like a hundred years from now, probably. He's three months old. Like it's not unrealistic that he'll make it to twenty what, twenty-three. Twenty three, twenty three. Um, <laughs> oh no! Let's see. We're not in two thousand two hundred. No. Wow. Yeah. Time is time is going at a whole different pace in fatherhood. Anyway, it's not unrealistic that he could live like another hundred years, and in that time, like the amount of change that could be made if we do nothing versus the amount of change that we could institute by starting something right now by like investing in our time and like stuff that matters is huge. So yeah, it's been kind of freaky, um, but also it is so. Helped me, helped me really see what matters and, um, and being able to share these, these places with him, even though he's just kind of learning how to focus his eyeballs is, um, is just so special uh,
0: kind of going back to what we talked about at the top of our conversation it seems like you've gotten some good practice uh painting humans with them
1: yes i have yeah the nice thing uh like the scariest thing about painting people is if you mess them up they'll judge you but like babies kind of look weird anyway so it's a perfect thing to sketch but also he's not gonna like be able to recognize a painting for years so i've got i've got like years to be able to paint him but it's uh yeah it's been really fun and it's it kind of... He turns the the ordinary into the extraordinary, for sure. So, just going on like a two-mile hike with a little guy is now just the wildest thing. <laughs> but it's also... It also makes me really excited to be able to show him some of these places. And, and I used to feel uh, the need to to like travel to the ends of the earth to be able to find an adventure. And it's really refreshing to be able to find adventure you know, in the woods a block from our house. And it makes me just so thrilled to be able to show him Alaska in a bigger sense of the, the place soon.
0: Yeah, you kind of experience everything for the first time again through him which is cool. That, I don't yeah, have well kids, said. but I imagine that's what it's like.
1: Yeah, well, and it's funny too, like in the environmental field, everybody's like, oh, why would you have kids? Like the world is you know going to go down in flames. And I think at some level, it's like, that's why you have kids, whether right. you like have your own or you help, you know, you help encourage or educate or or raise others. Like these kids growing up now are the ones who are really going to inherit a lot of the problems that we're not quite seeing yet. And, um, and so you know, have them and and educate them and kind of raise them to be the most resilient people that they can because they're the ones who are actually going to be doing this work. We we can just kind of lay the blueprint for them to hopefully find some solutions.
0: Well said. Um, Before I get you out of here, uh, are there any kind of projects in the pipe that uh, you can talk about? Let's see. Um, Some of the
1: cool things that are going on, um, trying to... Let's see. Okay. I'm going to give you like the super far off to like the super close. The super far off, I am trying to figure out a way to make running events a bit more uh, inclusive. And so, I think that one of the big things that I've been filming is like these ideas of like you have to fly to this crazy place to run this race to be, you know, to be a successful runner. And so, I want to figure out ways to make that mountain range behind your house just as exciting as it actually is. It doesn't require a. It might not seem as like cool or crazy or like you know wild, but like it is. And so I want to figure out a way to do that. And I can't talk too much to that. But give me one year, and I'll be able to sh- like having back on. Set the timer. Google Calendar invite. I've uh, got some crazy stuff coming down the pipeline for that. But the the smaller stuff is a, a year full of some wild events of normal, and then the Footprints Running Camp, which is with Dakota. Jones um, and a crew of some amazing people. They have a film that we're going to release at the Trail Running Film Festival um, if anybody wants to go check it out. But they're doing some really cool stuff combining trail running and, and activism and small community development in a, in a really wild way. And they've got a camp in Vermont and Australia this year. But they're, they are setting up some some wild action. But you'll be able to see that story at the Trail Running Film Festival and then a bit later this summer if you want to check that out.
0: Awesome. I'm looking forward to, to following along. Thanks for chatting with me, Max. Yeah, no, it's been great. Oh, and shameless
1: plug, I am sketching every day this year and I'm posting this all on Instagram. So, if anybody hears this and they say, oh, I wish I was an artist, I want to be a better one, send me send me something on Instagram. I, I don't have the answers, but I've made most of the mistakes. And so, I can at least tell you where not to go. And the world needs more artists. Uh, from, from all walks of life. So, if you hear this, this is your sign. Pick up the paintbrush, get that sketchbook that you like didn't fill out. Like now's, now's the time to do it. Let's get painting. The world needs you. We'll put a link in
0: the show notes for that for sure. Perfect. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, of course. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Max for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.